Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Berlin, and we have a Gems from the Guidelines episode today where we're going to be talking about a much anticipated release of a brand new guidelines. The 2022 AHA canine vaccination guidelines are out, and we're very excited about that. These are super important guidelines, and so we definitely want to spend some time talking about them. But um, the guest that we have here today was uh, one of the distinguished task force members for these guidelines, Dr. John Ellis. Welcome to Central Line. Thank you. It's great to have you. Um, Before we get started, would you mind giving us a little bit of background on who you are, what you've done to be sitting here talking to me today about canine vaccinations? Well, I'll try to keep it shorter than war and peace. Uh, I started out growing up in Chicago suburbs wanting to be a small animal veterinarian uh, since I I can remember. And of course, I didn't end up doing anything like that, I guess. uh, And the cosmic justice really started when I got to vet school and my two least favorite courses, I think, were virology and immunology. And that's what I ended up doing for most of my uh, career. And I uh, feel privileged and lucky to have been in academia. It's been uh, just a fascinating way to spend time and uh, contribute to the profession. And I've done a lot of different things. Uh, um, It's a great profession for, of course, as many of you realize, for people with ADD. I mean, I can't think of a better profession uh, to have than to jump around species and diseases. It's so, um, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, But I guess to bring it back to the point, um, one of my main interests uh, or focuses has been respiratory disease and how to protect against respiratory disease. So I guess that's uh, my most uh, relevant contribution to, to the guidelines. Well, it's it's wonderful to have you. And as we were saying just before we started recording, you know, I, I think it really is um, helpful and a, a good thing to hear about people who said, oh, I want to be a vet when I grow up. And then they did, but found a way to do it that wasn't necessarily the textbook way. You know, they didn't just say there's only one way to be a vet and that's the way I'm going to take. You know, you found a way to maximize your strengths and um, and really get deep into some areas that um, that aren't traditional clinical practice. And I think that's really neat. Um, And we need, you you know, the great thing about a veterinary degree, and it's become a cliche is it does give a person so many different opportunities uh, to to explore different, totally different aspects of 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 the profession. Yeah. And then as I know, from experience, it is easy to forget that when you're in clinical practice, and you feel like, you know, for many of us, there's kind of a moment where we think, is this all there is? And for some of us, that is a fantastic life to build sustainably for a long time. And for others, it isn't. And there are lots of other directions to go with a DVM degree or VMD degree. Uh, and so that is very, that's very cool. And we're thrilled to have you um, because these guidelines are packed and they're a great update to the last canine vaccination guidelines. Um, and today we are going to be talking about some I I called it myth busting, but we're not really busting myths ourselves. We're thinking about what happens when clients come in having digested some of the myths about vaccines that they've that they found on the Internet or on on the TV or whatever Mm -hmm. and or from their cousin, cousin's mother's aunt. And (laughs) 
we address these every single day in general practice. I mean, it's like a, you sometimes feel like you're a tape recorder, like playing over and over again. And so we wanted to talk about how we can address some of those. But before we do, one last thing. I always like to ask a personal question um, when people come on because I feel like we get to know them right away a little bit better. So I was wondering if you had a billboard that the entire veterinary profession could see on their way to work every day, what would it say? Yeah, well, I think I'd actually steal something from one of my MD friends sent me, which was a T-shirt that said um, vaccine causes adults. And I would change that to say vaccine causes adult dogs and cats. There and we I'd go. Have a, a picture of, uh, you know, an adult dog romping with its owner and a cat sleeping on its owner's uh, chest or reading books, that sort of thing. And so I think people really forget that. And it's a beautiful concept. It really is beautiful. And we... we... I feel like vaccines really get kind of the raw, a raw deal because we think of them as just being sort of routine and humdrum. And they're really just these, as we've discovered in the last couple of years, they're these amazing things that take so much work and to develop. And then we just t- sort of take them for granted, especially if they've been mm-hmm. around for a long time, as some of our canine vaccinations have been. But they're really little miracles. And um, really, I... I I'm glad that we get to spend a little bit of time focusing on them because they are so small and so important. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I found in practice was that when I was in the exam room, sometimes I would just be so tired. Like I would just say, you know what, I don't know if I really want to have this debate today about whether the Lyme vaccine is going to cause a problem or whether lepto is really necessary for your dog. Like I just, maybe just this once, I'll take it easy and just like, not have this conversation but for well, that well, thank you for that one dog for, for reminding me of that I, I like to tell people that uh the thing i'm proudest of is i'm just about ready to retire and i've only had a real job that being in practice for one year <laughs> reminding me why yeah. i made that decision thank you yeah that that conversation fatigue of like the same five conversations over and over <laughs> you know about parasite prevention and vaccinations whatever it does it does get a little bit old but for the dog that's in the room with you that day and the client that's looking at you for whom that dog is everything that conversation is extremely important and it's so hard to keep that motivation sometime but that billboard would be a good reminder that you could be helping that puppy in that room looking at you that day to grow up to be an adult dog because of that conversation that's pretty cool mm-hmm. That's a lot of responsibility, but we have these yeah. great tools. So, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons why AHA's vaccine guidelines are usually the most re- most frequently referenced um, online of all of our guidelines. Whenever we look at the numbers, that tends to be true because we deal with these questions and concerns from clients every single day. They're common, but they're certainly not always simple. And mm-hmm. I was hoping that we could, you know, sort of tackle what I was thinking of as like the top three client objections I could think of from my time in practice. So um, if, if for those of you who are listening, if you haven't checked out the new guidelines, please do. They're live at aha.org slash canine dash vaccinations with an S at the end. And there's lots of cool stuff on there. There are resources for your team. There's a cool infographic, vaccine calculator, all that good stuff, and a full manuscript of the guidelines. So that being said, uh, are you okay if we sort of jump in? Sure. Okay. A captive audience of one. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully there's more than one person listening, but you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna place bets on numbers. <laughs> so okay. Uh, first one I can think of is um, clients come in and they're like, well, 
when was the last time you treated a case of distemper? Like, aren't these diseases really rare now? Why do I need to vaccinate my dog? How would you suggest that we get into that by being educational and empathetic without being dismissive? Well, I'm I'm sorry about the last for, uh, clause there, but I I um, I uh, yeah, this is one of my favorites. Uh, and I guess for those of you in the audience that are interested in music or pop music or even retro music fans, there are Joni Mitchell, who some of you may know, actually from Saskatoon, uh, wrote a song called "The Big Yellow Taxi," and one of the uh, part of that libretto was uh, "You don't know what you got till it's gone." So. You know, I think like virtually many, if not all things in life are, are best appreciated in their absence. And so when you and this experiment has been done repeatedly over history, including to the, in, in current times, just stop vaccinating. Mm -hmm. And, um, you, you know, you'll appreciate what vaccines do. And so that's the ironic sort of thing. That, again, admittedly, most people in the general public don't think about this Uh because they don't think a lot about vaccines and medicine most of the time. But, y you know, the reason why we don't see things is because infectious diseases is because of vaccination and essentially. And and again, that to, to prove that to oneself, um, all you have to do is uh, and I'm not recommending this experiment, but stop vaccinating um, your children, your your pets. And um, none of these viruses or bacteria have gone away. Only one really, you know, in history has been eradicated as far as we know, smallpox. And it's interesting that now its cousin monkeypox is becoming uh, a problem. Mm -hmm. And there's concern about vaccination for that, of course. But so, yeah, I, I, I mean, it, Again, anyone who has dealt with a humane society or a shelter knows that um, those diseases that are easily preventable by vaccination, and let's just focus on dogs, the killers of dogs, parvo and distemper haven't gone away. And um, they, they're really all over the place in places that um, where dogs are commingled and where there's a low vaccination uh, prevalence. And so the other part of that that a lot of people don't think about, and it was certainly raised uh, in all the discussion around COVID vaccines, is herd immunity. And so the reason why, you know, uh, we we want to get a lot of animals vaccinated, even though an owner only has one or many or several, is because that is going to be the way that we maintain so-called herd immunity and prevent or reduce the chances for transmission of common common agents. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, clients don't necessarily want to hear the hard science, right? But what you're talking about now is is really common knowledge. Like the pandemic really highlighted a lot of the things that we've been trying to emphasize in the exam room with clients over and over for so long, and they've been able to see them sort of develop in real time, not just a new disease with a vaccine that's changed life for us so dramatically, but also now the emergence of monkeypox as a problem. And now they're, they found polio in the wastewater. In well, York. yeah, I'm, I'm, I was just going to mention that. I mean, one of my earliest memories of childhood is, uh, again, in the Chicago suburbs, we went to swimming, public swimming pools every summer. We look forward to it. And I can rem remember my mother being hysterical about us going. And that was right at the time. I'm, I'm really that old that um, <laughs> when polio vaccines were just being applied and um, being the ne necrophilic that I am, I find it so interesting and entertaining when when these agents, um, you know, some of my favorite 
things or viruses are are shown to still be important. Yeah. And you know, everyone now has heard. I, I think about the the detection of polio in the United Kingdom and in North America, and uh, you know, arguably a lot of that. Well, two things. Again, it indicates that polio hasn't gone away. Um, it's certainly been been way dampened down through vaccination, but it's you know could reemerge, and and it's you know with the kind of anti-vaccination sentiment that is you know present in 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 today's world, uh, it's problematic. Yeah, and it, it's probably safe to say that in one appointment in one exam room, you're probably not going to change somebody who's a absolutely crazy anti-vaxer like zealot. You're not going to change that person's mind with one appointment, but not talking about it to make that appointment easier is not the solution, right? That repetition, especially with what they're seeing in the news too, could make a difference and you have to try. That's our responsibility to try. Um, So you can, you can bring these things up as examples and not be accusatory, but more, um, you know, I understand you have concerns, but the reason that we're all here is because of these concepts of herd health, herd immunity, and vaccinating every individual that we can, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right, next one, reactions. So the client comes in and says, I'm worried about reactions, and I only want to give him what's absolutely necessary. That's my favorite is when they say, I only want to give him what's absolutely necessary. <laughs> well, I'll start out uh, with a, you know, a, a quote, or I guess it's originally Nietzsche's idea, and then it was Kelly Clarkson took it on as a song. <laughs> that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I mean that's a re- relatively dramatic. Yeah, you probably and, you can't know, say I, that. I wouldn't recommend that as a first statement <laughs> yeah. for the for the exam room. But it it really it really gets into the whole reaction thing on, on several levels. And first of all, I think the important thing to remember. I mean, there's, you know, unlike in human medicine, we have less data around reactions, but there's been some really good large-scale studies indicating that reaction rates in small animal medicine, including some of the, you know, so-called bad actors like lepto vaccines, uh, such as those that tend to be reactive, overall, it's a very low reaction rate and arguably less than than occurs in, in pediatric medicine. So that's one thing. I mean, it's an in, incredibly low rate uh, overall of, uh, of adverse reactions. But getting back to my opening kind of quip, what, and I know, you know, for all the veterinarians in the audience, you all learned this in immunology, especially if you've gone to the veterinary school in the last, you know, two decades. I didn't learn it because all I learned in, in, uh, in immunology was about eosinophils because my teacher had asthma. And this was in 1975, and they hardly even knew what B and T cells were. But one of the things that's become increasingly well documented is, is um, you, you know, the, the role of the innate immune response, the so-called innate immune response. It's a less glamorous part of the immune response. And to cut to the chase without putting everyone to sleep, what people forget is that there's a necessary bridge between the innate immune response, which is an inflama- essentially an inflammatory response, and the adaptive immune response, which are B and T cell responses. And without some level of inflammation, you're going to get a very poor, poor uptake of uh, adaptive immunity. And so, you know, it's obviously a balancing act. And so, uh, for instance, when I, I had my um, my SARS vaccines, uh, I had virtually no reaction at all. Now, that could be because of, who knows, but my daughter, uh, she was quite ill. And so I, even though I, you know, I felt for her, but I said, 
that means it's working, right? Yeah. Um, and and so virtually all vaccines, even the, even the subunit uh, SARS vaccine, has so-called danger signals, uh, which are molecular patterns that the innate immune system recognizes as bad. And what happens then is they sec- secrete these soluble mediators called cytokines. And again, uh, veterinarians will remember some of these. I'm not going to go into the excruciating detail at this point. We had a whole point, story but, again, about the cytokines yeah. to try to remember them. Okay, we had good. a whole story yeah. we told about them. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, and again, that's, I guess, an important thing to remind people in the context of, again, this isn't the obviously rabid anti-vaxxers for who probably aren't going to be there anyway, but for the, you know, the rational people that have had their children vaccinated, what does the pediatrician tell them? He tells them, well, you know, your child may, may have an off day, you know, after vaccination, give it, uh, give it some Tylenol um, or aspirin. And, um, you know, that's part of the response we expect. And I think that part of communication, um, has been left out, I think, um, that detail and that um, kind of similarity between experiences between the pediatric experience and and the pet experience, I think is a good one to remind people of. And um, yeah, it it really, uh, it's problematic because, of course, the other thing that many people want is a risk-free existence, and um, it just doesn't happen you know, in the immune response, if, uh, so, yeah, it's an, I guess it's an important part of the overall process, some level of reactivity, and um, that needs, I think, to be conveyed to people. That's a really good point. I feel like I have seen a lot of appointments where, um, especially when I was in with a veterinary assistant or a technician who was helping me with the appointment, and it, almost seems like a lot of times we don't train our teams to talk about reactions as if they're normal and expected. We talk about them like, you know, if the client asks, then we bring them up or we like hand them something, kind of stick it in with their paperwork. But it's almost like we hope we don't have to talk about it. And in fact, Mm -hmm. a vaccine reaction is a very normal thing. And like when I had my first COVID vaccines, I had, you know, my first set of two I had the Pfizer vaccine and I didn't have any reaction at all. I didn't feel anything. And I was worried. I was like, are they working? Am I a non-responder? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And uh, then I, I got a Moderna booster and I was like knocked on my butt for a day. And um, I was like, oh, good. Yeah. You know, something's going on. But I, we, we expect it with ourselves when we get a vaccine. But when it comes to our pets, I, I think people just tend to get so panicky whenever they see their pet not feeling well. So getting ahead of it right. seems like a really good strategy and saying, well, that just means... It's working. That's what we heard over and over during COVID. And now, and mm-hmm. and I, I don't know that I thought to say that very often in the exam room, you know, of my own accord. Mm-hmm. So that's a really good point. Um, you know, one thing that I do sometimes, I have sometimes struggled with is the line between where you continue to vaccinate for something, um, even though the pet does poorly afterwards, versus if you decide to discontinue that vaccine. Generally, obviously, I, I know if there's like an anaphylactic response, that's a little bit different than if right. they're like tired. But right, well, that brings up a couple of points. Uh, first of all, I think there's been some level of uh, misunderstanding about what's actually involved in adver- most adverse reactions. It doesn't really have, in most cases, anything to do with uh, with hypersensitivity per se and a type one IgE response. It's more the this innate 
for lack of a better term, cytokine overload that is really the cause of most adverse reactions in people and and, and uh, domestic animals when they receive vaccines. And so, yeah, that. Um, and the other thing to remember related to herd immunity, I mean, and this is the the art of practice and the judgment call. I'm glad you brought it up. Is that, I mean, if an animal has a really severe reaction to vaccination, then. You know, I don't think it's unreasonable to consider not vaccinating that animal again with that particular, certainly that mm -hmm. vaccine and maybe that antigen. And, you know, if herd immunity, if this is where, again, herd immunity comes into play, if, if there's, you know, the vast majority of the population is is vaccinated, you know, that really reduces the risk of that particular animal who's a, a genetic freak, for lack of a better term. Um, it reduces the risk to that animal. So that's another very important reason for, for herd immunity is it protects, you know, people or animals with weak or weaker immune responses to various things. Yeah, a good point. And I, I want to go back to what you said, where you said, um, you know, you would think twice about vaccinating that animal with that vaccine and possibly with that antigen. So when you said that, you were basically saying that the vaccine formulation itself could be what caused the reaction, right? Versus like the distemper in it. it exactly. And, you know, it, in most cases, again, it relates to this hypersensitivity issue. In most cases, when we have an adverse reaction to vaccination, whether it be in a cow or a dog or whatever, or a human, it's not an antigen specific sort of a reaction per se. It's more of this it's more likely to be this response to a danger signal in the vaccine. In other words, a molecular pattern, whether it be in the whatever the cell culture constituents are left or the if there's an adjuvant, something else than the antigen per se. And I think that's sort of a misunderstanding that most people mm -hmm. have. It's not usually going to be the, dis for instance, the distemper virus that is causing the adverse reaction Yeah. Uh, from an antigenic perspective, or uh, it's going to be something else. Yeah. And again, it relates to the um, induction of inflammation, which is really the clinical outcome of, of that, that response. So for team members listening who might not be vets or techs and have this background, um, an antigen is like the little piece of the infectious disease that's that you're vaccinating for. So um, the, the thing that you're trying to create an immune response to versus the adjuvants and the things in the vaccine right. that are meant to carry that, that piece of infectious disease and cause that, that inflammatory response. Exactly. And you know, it's another what reminds me another one of the courses that I really wanted, couldn't wait to get out of biochemistry. And I wish I would have paid more attention because, of course, all of life right. is biochemistry. And when it comes to and beyond that, it's pattern recognition. And so it, it you know, without going into boring detail, you know, it's the same sort of thing happens in the adaptive immune system, the innate immune system, only the patterns and the, the ligands and the receptors are different, but it's the same sort of phenomenon. And so, in, again, in the, you know, the adaptive immune system, we have these little parts, usually of proteins that are recognized by B and T cells, whereas in the innate immune system, we have these molecular patterns that aren't, aren't found in vertebrates that are recognized by a different set of receptors. And then there's this electrostatic interaction that takes place triggers what happens next inside the cell. So it's really the same sort of pa uh, pattern of response. It's just differences in what's responded to and re how they're recognized. All right. Thank you. I, I'm having flashbacks to the whiteboard in my immunology class now. 
all the diagrams. I know I was lucky enough to be in a study group with somebody who loved immunology. So she just stood up there and like drew diagrams for us until we remembered it. It was fantastic. Laura, Laura Brown, if you're listening, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but uh, okay, next objection, because we also hear this one a lot. Um, well, this one's really two in one the way that I phrased it, because I like to do that. So uh, what about when they say something like, well, the breeder said I shouldn't give this vaccine, or at least after he's a puppy, we should just run titers? Um, I'll start with the second one, because that's got less um, kind of EQ <laughs> involved, probably, um, which is not my main, my <laughs> long suit. But uh, so... Yeah, the titer thing is really interesting, I, uh, and it's another one of my favorite topics. Uh, you know, uh, first of all, in if you think about it, in human medicine, all basically vaccine efficacy is based on titers. I mean, they don't challenge babies. You know, in, in very most countries, right. for instance, uh, so it's all based on serology essentially, and but it's serology plus a lot of data on. Not only on the titers per se, but on the, uh, you know, the consequences in the in various individuals with various titers. I mean it, and so again, the data that that is there. I mean, we always need more, obviously, but the data that's there in human medicine is is really so much substantially larger that it's really hard to get your head around. But if you think about it. You know the the resources that are put into human medicine are, are are huge compared to veterinary medicine. So, and even with that, you know, there's going to be some antigens for which there are poor data, and it and it's kind of an, uh, a a guess. But again, the critical part of the whole titer story is um, associating with an outcome. Um, and there are you know there's the initial studies for vaccine licensing where where titers can be associated with an outcome but the other the limitation of that is is that generally those types of studies are done under peak immune response optimal conditions and so how that relates to household pets is problematic the other big problem in veterinary medicine and this is changing somewhat with uh, commercial laboratories but it's still a big problem is is standardization among laboratories in terms of the testing that's being done to to determine a titer so without you know to cut to the chase without the disease associations and standardization uh in tighter testing it's difficult to make uh draw conclusions especially if the titers are in what you, you would be generally considered a mid-range i mean if the titers are zero and screaming high you, you know that you it's it, you're in a safer ground to make uh, some sort of decision or judgment on that uh, th th those data but if if you know you got a mid-level tighter and you know it, it's it can be really difficult to to make an uh, a, a, an informed judgment about what to do with that that information and so given you know the low levels of reactivity overall i think if there's a question just vaccinate yeah um you know, certainly, as we've already talked about, if an, if a particular animal is has a bad, rea really bad reaction to X vaccine, then that's a whole other discussion. But for the vast, vast majority of uh, dogs, cats, people, you, you know, the reaction, the serious reactions uh, rate is very low, and so 
um, I wouldn't hesitate to vac- vac- vaccinate if there's, uh, you know, a question about that. And I guess my answer to the first one, I, it's hard. I, I'm trying to control myself, but who's got the degree? <laughs> yeah. You know, really? Yeah. Um, and and I, we, we, we just we jump to the defensive so quickly when people say things like that, because we're just like, what? why are you listening to someone who just decided that they could breed dogs in their garage? You know, why, why are you listening to them? And then you're coming in here and paying me money to listen to what I'm saying and arguing about it. But they don't necessarily see that difference right away. That's another, I think an interesting difference between human and veterinary medicine. I think uh, MDs in their first year get a class in arrogance (laughs) one-on-one. And I, you know, I, like people who know me would probably say Ellis could teach that, but um, you, you know, it's an interesting difference in terms of you know just the kind of you walk into a room and a, a pediatrician walks into a room and it you know it's 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 sort of you know his re, generally the reactions to these sorts of questions are going to yeah. be next. I mean, not even going to. I'm I'm walking out the yeah. door, yeah. giving Tylenol, <laughs> you know, writing something down. I. And we just, I think, as a as a profession, um, pay a lot more attention. And I, I guess we have to at some level. But I, I I just like to do the experiment that if we actually had what I would call more backbone in a lot of these situations, that that it would be a lot better. And I think people they they kind of want that at some level. I, you know, it's I, I like to use you know I'm I'm a biologist, and I don't know I wouldn't pretend to know anything about mechanics. I'm interested, but if I go to my garage to get my pickup truck fixed or whatever, I'm I'm not yeah. going to really question his his yeah. judgment. I'm going there because he's a professional with as much kind of experience and and yeah. I respect that. And so it's it's always interesting that for some reason, you know, a lot of people just figure they can bounce veterinarians around in terms of well, I you know I'm not going to I know more than you. I you know why do I listen to need to listen to you? I yeah I. Sometimes we do ourselves a disservice because we do have a profession that can be super cute. And science is science, whether we have we're surrounded by puppies and kittens or we're surrounded by, you know, test tubes and things that are saving human lives actively right now. They can be really, really different surroundings. But the science is 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 what it is. And sometimes I do think we we don't emphasize that part of the profession enough because people like the puppies and kittens, you know? Um, So we have Mm -hmm. to find ways to work that in there. And I also think that it's important to know yourself and know your audience, right? And if you have a client that wants that scientific explanation and they want you to tell them what to do, you can usually see that. You know, if you're paying attention during the conversation. Right, right. Well, you could. (laughs) I I don't know You sort of get a feel for that, of which clients just kind of want you to tell them what what is recommended, then others really want to have that power for themselves and may need to go home and think about it and come back after they've, mm-hmm. after they've thought it through and looked at some of the resources you've given them. But give them resources, you know? Tell them you consult the AHA guidelines right. because if they think that you're just parroting what you've been taught, then they don't necessarily see a difference between that and them talking about what they've learned, even though the, the sources were drastically yeah. different. So... reading the room is really important, but also using your team. Like I've had technicians helping me who knew just as much about vaccines as I did. 
and could have had a much better conversation with certain clients than I could have because they were less defensive mm -hmm. and they understood. Maybe they had a family member who didn't believe in vaccines and they were really annoyed because every time they go home for di family dinners, their family's like criticizing them for giving vaccines all day. I don't yeah. know why, but there may be somebody on your team who could be the person to have that conversation in a different way than you feel capable of on that day. Um, and they, you, you, we should empower them to do that because our teams are smart and motivated and they want to do the right thing. I mean, that, that's a really excellent point. Um, mm -hmm. Delegating that sort of, um, for lack of a better term, delegating that sort of interaction for the people who, who are really good at it or relatively yeah. more good at it. You were talking about your pediatricians and, you know, it's like, they weren't spending, especially now, I probably when I was a kid, it was a little different. But now, you know, they don't have that time to spend in the room answering all of these things over and over and over again. But the nurse might. And I remember the nurse at my pediatrician's office. I'm 44. And I remember Loretta and exactly how she looked and what kind of shoes she wore. And she always gave me a butter cookie at the end of the appointment. <laughs> and like, maybe well. in your practice, you have a Loretta <laughs> who can be that person for your clients. Exactly. So, um, yeah. Use Perfect. your teams, empower your teams. And, uh, you know, that's great. I think those are three of the biggest things. And you are emphasizing the scientific background for why we do these things. And we shouldn't be afraid to do that. You know, don't shy away from the science just because you're afraid that people don't want to hear it. But they may need, uh, may need it couched in some a different delivery. Yeah, I mean, one of the, you know, interesting of many epiphenomena around the whole COVID thing was, you know, it became apparent to me, again, that it, it reminded me how lucky I was not to have to deal with the general <laughs> public that often, is uh, the, the mistrust or distrust people have in, in, in um, I like a better term, science. It's mm -hmm. become a sort of a cliche, but, you know, it, it, it really is... Uh, it's problematic, and I don't know that there's. You know, it seems to be getting worse. So I, it is. It, it really is a problem in terms of. Um, but again, it, a lot of that problem comes from you, you know the 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 success of vaccination in this context is that people haven't experienced the you know the diseases infectious diseases as nearly as often as occurred even in my childhood, um, whooping cough and you know, polio, those sorts of things, you just don't see them. And it becomes easy for people to not, who don't think about those things to, to kind of be convinced that, well, this is all someone making this stuff up. And, you know, it's all multinational corporations trying to make more money on me. I, it's, so it's easy to see without the direct experience of infectious disease, why some of this, these problems yeah, have emerged. Absolutely. Okay, so one last question. Um, you had given us your billboard, which was very, very good, and I think a very effective image. But from these guidelines specifically, what is the number one takeaway that you would want all of the veterinary teams, so not just veterinarians, but technicians, assistants, client care teams, What's the one takeaway you'd like them to get from these guidelines? Well, again, it's another reminder, I think, uh, of um, with the referencing and things it, it, that 
you know, and I'm biased, but vaccination is the one medical procedure in human and veterinary medicine that has saved more lives than any other thing by orders of magnitude, you, you know, and so that those data continue to be strengthened as, as we move on. So that's a, that, that's a reinforcement for what we already knew. The other thing um, that I think is important, we kind of addressed it uh, at, at some level during this conversation, is is I think it, one of the things that's missing in veterinary medicine uh, compared to human medicine is, is consistency. And I think that can lead to problems in terms of people, well, especially if in the same practice, um, an individual, you know, there's veterinarians that are using yes. vaccines in different ways. I, you know, again, that's not that common in yeah. In human medicine, there's what there's a protocol uh, that's based on data that generally people follow, and they don't kind of uh, mix and match and come up with their own protocol. So I th- I think that that the the guidelines provides you know database consistency with the recognition that we don't know everything. So that that's a, I think a real strength and and I, I think it's shorter than some of the previous uh, guidelines and so it's kind of a go-to like you've already said uh, hopefully it'll be a go-to guide that can provide some level of consistency um, more easily achieved consistency because I, again I think we underappreciate here's me trying to have some EQ what the public takes away from this la- yeah. a, a lack of consistency in practice amongst they think we're in, making in the it same practice forget about yeah. between yeah, 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 I I so. love that message, and that is something that our resources that we're creating around the guidelines uh, are really going to emphasize too. Is um, you know consistency of message, how every member of the team can be actively involved in promoting that consistent message and in delivering accurate information to the clients when they ask. Because it isn't helpful when a client calls, has a question about vaccines, and nobody on the client services team can answer that question. And then it has to go to a technician who maybe not know, or it goes right to the veterinarian who might see something different than the veterinarian said last year. And that, you're right, that creates doubt in the mind of the client, and it makes it seem like it's an optional protocol. And um, and that right, is right. absolutely not going to help the cause of vaccinating as many animals as possible and creating that herd immunity. So um, I love that message. And definitely uh, remember, you can check out those guidelines at um, aha.org slash canine dash vaccinations. It's a 2022 AHA canine vaccination guidelines and tons of online resources, including a really cool infographic that we had made that you can share with your team. You can even share with your clients. Um, it makes it takes things, breaks them down into easily digestible little bites of information. And I think sometimes that's just what people need nowadays. So definitely check all of that out. Dr. Ellis, thank you so much. Um, I feel like if I have a question about vaccines and that I can't find in an AHA guidelines, I know who to go to now because. <laughs> well, that's a scary thought, but thank you. Really it's appreciate been a pleasure. your time. And um, everybody listening, if you have any questions about any of the information Dr. Ellis shared today, if you have thoughts about the guidelines, please email me at podcast at aha.org. I promise I will answer and um, get your question to the appropriate person if that person is not me. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.